Jesus was biologically related to Mary. He had human DNA, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and subsequently adopted by Joseph. Adopted sons had full legal rights in both Jewish and Roman culture. So Jesus was truly and legally the great, 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 he had some greats, grandson of David. Matthew is very eager to make that claim, and he believes that to be very significant. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Gospel of Matthew tells us the story of Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, son of David and seed of Abraham. He is, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most important character to ever walk upon the stage of human history. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover basic introduction and orientation. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it was given that position largely because for the first 1,500 years of church history, pretty much everyone assumed that Matthew was the first of the four Gospels to be written. However, not many people today hold to that position. The consensus of the church in the last 500 years has shifted toward the idea that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke used Mark and added content according to their own specific reasons for writing. D.A. Carson, for example, puts it this way. He says, Some literary dependence is self-evident. It seems easiest to support the view that Matthew and Luke both depend on Mark rather than vice versa, largely because Matthew and Mark frequently agree against Luke, and Mark and Luke frequently agree against Matthew, but Matthew and Luke seldom agree against Mark, closed quote. So basically, Carson is saying there that it, it looks like Matthew and Luke both used Mark, but it doesn't look like they had access to each other's work. The unique things that they add are often not the same. So if that basic understanding is correct, and it does seem like a reasonable hypothesis, then it is probably best to assume that Mark wrote around A.D. 65, having interviewed the Apostle Peter in prison and after having spent several years as his personal secretary. Matthew and Luke then, shortly thereafter, used Mark as a source and expanded upon his work wherever they thought it helpful and appropriate to do so. Luke says that he interviewed many different people. Church history actually suggests that Mary, the mother of Luke, was a major source for Luke's gospel, which is why you get more of the classic birth narratives in Luke's gospel, whereas Matthew actually doesn't tell us a great deal about the nativity proper. Matthew, of course, as one of the 12 disciples, was able to rely more on his own personal memories and experiences And he chose to include a large number of teaching units, which Mark, for whatever reason, did not feel the need to include. In fact, for that very reason, Matthew is sometimes called the teacher's gospel. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a great deal in common, which is why they're often referred to as the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to see together. You can talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a unit. They're telling the same story in three slightly different ways or from three slightly different perspectives. Now, that being said, Matthew does seem to have a couple of specific emphases. Mark and Luke touch on all these things, but Matthew seems to put particular stress on a few things over and above that assigned by the others. Among these special emphases, scholars often mention five in particular. Number one, first of all, Matthew seems to be very interested in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. There are over 50 Old Testament citations in Matthew, and he will frequently say things like, all this took place to fulfill what was said by the prophet so-and-so. Secondly, Matthew seems very interested in the relationship between Israel and the church. The rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel and the embrace of Jesus by many supposed outsiders is a major emphasis in Matthew's gospel. Matthew makes it clear that the new Israel is made up of all people, Jew and Gentile, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Matthew puts a lot of stress on the royal identity of Jesus. Jesus is the king. He is Lord. Jesus is the son of David. That's very important for Matthew. Fourthly, Matthew is very interested in the function and role of the law. He is interested in how it anticipates Christ and how it is fulfilled in Christ and how it is interpreted by Christ. He is critical of the ritualism and formalism of the Pharisees, but he is also critical of what later theologians will come to call antinomianism, the idea that after Jesus there is no use or no purpose for the law. Matthew wouldn't go there, and he wouldn't want us to go there either. And then fifthly, Matthew is very interested in the church. He's the only gospel writer, actually, to even use the word church. Matthew is interested in the ongoing role of the disciples of Jesus on the earth during the great delay and before Christ's ultimate return. All right, with all that being said, let's actually get into the Gospel of Matthew. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, first verses are often very important, and they will give us a clue as to the author's purpose and intention for the work as a whole. Consider, for example, the first verse of Mark's gospel. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That tells you Mark's purpose in writing. He is writing to convince the reader that Jesus is the Son of God. He spends his whole gospel trying to convince us of that, and therefore the climax of his gospel is when the Roman centurion, the last person you would ever expect to identify Jesus as the Son of God, points at Jesus on the cross at the very moment of his death and says, truly, this man was the Son of God, Mark 15, 39. So the first sentence and the climactic sentence in Mark's gospel tell us what the whole work is about. You see much the same thing in John's gospel. John 1, 1, first verse of the gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John says that 
Jesus, whom he identifies as the Word, was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God, and at the same time, separate or distinct in some sense. So with God and God. Wow, all of that is given to us in the very first verse of the gospel. That is what John is setting out to prove. The climax of John's gospel comes out of the mouth of doubting Thomas, of all people. After the resurrection of Jesus, he sees the marks on his hands and the wound in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God, John 20, verse 28. So again, the first sentence and the climactic sentence tell us what the gospel is all about. Matthew, likewise, makes his motivation clear. He wants to show us that Jesus is the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah and king of the world. He also wants us to know that Jesus is the true seed and son of Abraham, the one on whom all the promises of God will come to rest, and the one who will become the head and father of the new people of God. Charles Spurgeon says here about verse 1, This verse gives us a clue to the special drift of Matthew's gospel. He was moved of the Holy Spirit to write of our Lord Jesus Christ as king, the son of David. He is to be spoken of as especially reigning over the true seed of Abraham. Hence, he is called the son of Abraham, closed quote. So again, I think we're on to something here. The first verse is telling us a great deal about where Matthew intends to go. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I appreciate what you're saying, and I I think I understand why Matthew wants to emphasize these particular things, but I guess I have some questions as to the way he chose to make these points. I'm talking, of course, about this fairly long, fairly detailed genealogy. To be perfectly honest with you, listen, I love the Gospel of Matthew. I love the stories. I love the extended teaching blocks. I love it. But I struggle a bit to make my way through this first chapter, if I'm being honest. If I were making a movie, I don't think I would start it with a black screen showing five minutes worth of credits rolling. But that's kind of how this feels, to me anyway, as a Western reader. So why did Matthew do it this way? And what can you tell us as a modern-day Bible reader that can help us make it over what feels like a bit of a speed bump? That's actually a good way of putting it. It, it does feel like a bit of a speed bump. But then again, speed bumps are usually there for a reason. And I think this genealogy is there for a reason as well. What Matthew is trying to do here is ground the story of Jesus in actual history. And that's important for us to see. Christianity makes explicitly historical claims in a way that other religions generally don't. If you could prove that the details of Muhammad's life were not exactly the way they are generally suggested by the Quran, that wouldn't necessarily require you to make a complete change in Islamic theology. Or if you could prove that the Buddha wasn't born when or, or where or to whom that tradition generally teaches, that wouldn't fundamentally undermine the religion of Buddhism. And then Hinduism, of course, probably more even than the other two examples I gave, is not an explicitly historical religion in terms of its fundamental teachings. But Christianity is. If Jesus was not truly born of a virgin, then all the claims of Christianity immediately fall apart. If Jesus wasn't truly the son of David, then the entire biblical narrative falls apart. If he was not the seed of Abraham, then the entire theological structure of the gospel falls apart. And of course, if Jesus didn't actually die on the cross and actually physically, bodily, historically rise from the dead, 
then Christianity in total falls apart. Christianity as a faith system rests upon historical events to an extent that other religions simply do not. And so Matthew, understanding this, begins his gospel by locating Jesus inside a historical framework. And that's what a genealogy is. It is a shorthand way of doing history. Every name on that list tells a story. You see the name, you remember the story. And the arrangement of the list tells a story. The genealogy of Jesus is logically arranged. The first section starts with the promises made to Abraham and ends with the promises realized in the life and reign of David. Then the middle section tells the story of Israel's decline and exile. Then the last section tells the story of Israel's partial return and restoration. That's a pretty efficient way of summarizing the entire story of the Old Testament. It establishes the historical and theological context into which Jesus arrives as climax and cornerstone. All right. Well, that makes a ton of sense. I especially like what you said there about every name telling a story. So as a reader, it would be probably useful for me to go back and review the stories in the Bible associated with these names that I don't immediately recognize. Yeah. In fact, I would say that doing that would be like doing a first-year Bible school course on biblical theology. Oh, wow. That sounds a little intense, but I (laughs) I might just do that. Okay. Thanks for that. Let's jump into the story now at verse 2. Matthew is giving us Jesus' family tree. He's going all the way back to Abraham. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now let's just stop there for a second. I'm not sure if you remember that story. Matthew is telling us here that Jesus is related to Abraham up through Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now the story of Judah and Tamar is one of the weirdest and most unpleasant stories in all the Bible. The story of Judah is actually positioned in Genesis inside the Joseph story in order to provide contrast. While Joseph is running away from Potiphar's wife because of his virtue and faithfulness, Judah is sleeping with his daughter-in-law, whom he mistook for a prostitute. The point is that Jesus is descended from Abraham through the bad son. That's a surprise. That's not what we would expect. But that prepares us for themes of grace and mercy and election. Salvation in the Bible is never about who is best or brightest or oldest or most likely. Salvation is about grace and about God. Hallelujah. We pick up the story again in the middle of verse 3. We were talking about Judah being the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. All right, now let's pause there. Who, who is Ruth? Do you remember her? Ruth is a Moabitess. And the Old Testament says that no Moabite or Moabitess can enter the house of the Lord, Deuteronomy 23.3. And then what about Rahab? Rahab is another Gentile woman and a prostitute, according to Joshua chapter 2. So why is she in Jesus' family tree? 
again, by the inclusion of these unexpected people, we're being prepared here for themes of mercy and for the surprising inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. We jump back into the story halfway through verse 5. We were talking about Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, who is the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba is the woman that David raped. Call it whatever you want, sexual assault, rape. He used power to take away another man's wife and to bring her into his bed. He then arranged to have her husband murdered when she got pregnant. Jesus is descended from David via that story. The initial child that David and Bathsheba conceived died, but then David married Bathsheba and they had Solomon and Jesus is descended from David via him. So, Again, that's not what we would expect. And again, we notice this is a very messy story. This is a sin story that Jesus has entered into. Verse 7, And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, was Jesus biologically related to Joseph? Answer, no. He was legally the son of Joseph. That is to say, he was adopted. Jesus was biologically related to Mary. He had human DNA, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and subsequently adopted by Joseph, adopted sons, had full legal rights in both Jewish and Roman culture. So Jesus was truly and legally the great, 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 he had some greats, grandson of David. Matthew is very eager to make that claim, and he believes that to be very significant. We can see that in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Clearly, Matthew wants us to notice and appreciate the significance of the number 14. He says there are 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon and 14 
generations from Babylon to the birth of Jesus Christ. 14 obviously is important. So what does it mean? Most scholars assume that it refers to the numerical value of the name David in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the name David is spelled with three letters, three consonants. Delet, Wav, and Delet. Delet is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Delet. That's four. Wav is the sixth letter. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Delet, Het, Wav. That's six. So, Delet equals four. Wav equals six. Delet equals four again. So, that all adds up to 14. Matthew is saying that everything about the family line of Jesus shouts out to us, this man is the son of David and the long-awaited king of the world. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, in those days and in that culture, an engagement was far more binding than it is in our culture today. A betrothal was a binding legal contract. Mary and Joseph were essentially married. They just hadn't yet had the ceremony or the wedding night. Mary was thus a virgin. When it became evident that she was with child, Joseph, logically, assumed that she must have had some kind of affair with someone in her village. He could have brought her up on serious legal charges, but being a just man, the Bible says he intended to divorce her quietly. Divorce was relatively common in those days, which is something that Jesus will address in his teaching at multiple points in this gospel. However, Before that could happen, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and explained the unusual circumstances of Mary's pregnancy. The child she bore had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he has a very urgent and important mission, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Matthew is very eager for us to understand that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. You'll hear that phrase again and again and again over the course of this gospel. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to that genealogy thing for a second, if I can. You mentioned a few minutes ago that the main purpose of the genealogy is to locate Jesus within an actual historical narrative. Jesus just wasn't an idea. He wasn't a character in a story. He was a real human being. He was truly God 
and truly man, not just any man. He was the son of David and the seed of Abraham. And I get that. In fact, I love that. It was really neat to see how that point was being made. But it seemed to me, anyway, as we read that genealogy, that there are some other lesser points being made as well. There were some surprise cameo appearances, if you will, if I can use that phrase. Was there anything else in the genealogy that you want to draw attention to our listeners to? Well, in the program audio, I think I made mention of each of the women that are featured, but I didn't actually say much about how unusual it was at that time to make mention of women at all. In a genealogy, it just generally wasn't done. Generally speaking, when you read genealogies from that time, it lists the men. It is a story about this man whose father was that man whose father was that man. But Jesus' genealogy features a number of women. And some unusual women too, right? Yeah. The, the first woman mentioned is Tamar. And she was a woman who tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her so as to produce an heir for her dead husband. That's an unusual story right there. <laughs> yeah. Th- then we have Ruth, a non-Jew. And then after her, we have Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, with whom David committed adultery. So yeah, this is a pretty odd list for a first century Jewish genealogy. And I think the point is that Jesus entered into a real human story, a story about sin and deceit and failure, a story about men, women, children, and families. It wasn't an airbrushed story. It was real. It was uncut. It was unedited. It was authentic. Jesus doesn't steer away from the messy bits associated with being a human. He, he goes right at it. And so you're right. I, th- I think that's something that Matthew is intending for us to see in this story. And I'm thankful for that. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, we're off to a great start, and I can't wait to hear how this story continues in the weeks and episodes to come. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.